Your parents were Jewish immigrants from Lithuania. Has that family background contributed to your work? No, not really in the sense that, um, you know, it wasn't, it, the only point was America being America, you know, it's, it's uh, this is back, I was born in, what, 37, a long of tooth, and uh, very patriotic, first generation Europeans, very, you know, they never had it so good, America, you know, they, they basically ran away from who knows what in Europe, and um, uh, came here with no education and, and made a living, as they say. They never got rich, uh, but what happened was that, um, Somewhere about the age of 12 or 13, um, I started reading. I learned about the Book of the Month Club, and for 99 cents, I could send off and get uh, their and their nonfiction selection once a month. Most of them were pretty crazy books attacking the Russians and all that stuff. But I'd get, you know, histories of uh, the Habsburg monarchy and the history of the Western world, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I was sort of self-taught, and that was sort of nice. I, by the time I got... Uh, pretty much in the high school, I'd also I'd read a lot about a lot of stuff, and that's you know, if you ask me what to do, what message I have for anybody wanting to be a journalist, it's read before you write. Is that what led you to major in history at University of Chicago? No, who knows what led me to major in history? Maybe it was the easiest course. I was also <laughs> trying. I was also working and trying to. I was on. I was playing uh, varsity baseball as much as I could because, you know, I like sports. So. I, I, I'm sure it was just Chicago was a very tough place then, back in the 50s, the Hutchins days. Uh, and, you know, everybody a, a very much uh, a very progressive education in which there was no real major. You just studied core curriculum. You studied natural sciences. You studied social sciences. You had languages, you know, and so um, there was uh, uh, nothing light about it. And, uh, um, and so I'm sure history was probably the easiest uh, degree um, uh, to, you know, I'm, I'm not kidding. I probably was a degree that was the least requirements. Of course, I'm now curious. What position did you play in baseball? In my head, I was all-American shortstop, but I played a lot of, uh, as, a, as a freshman, as a kid, I played the outfield, then eventually second base. The best baseball I played was actually in the Army. I was in the Army, and I played a lot of baseball there on, on a division, Big Red One. This is back in the days when the Army had baseball teams, and it was the best thing you could do to avoid being in the field and, you know, busting your chops was to get on the baseball team. You go home for lunch with the chow truck mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then play a little baseball and take a nap. I wasn't, they make you popular with your buddies, but that's the way it goes. You, you started law school. Why? Well, what else could you do? I couldn't get a job after graduating. It, was, it wasn't a big market. And I was selling liquor and booze in a liquor store in a, in a uh, drugstore, Walgreens drugstore. They could sell liquor. And I guess I was over 21. I hope I was. <laughs> And uh, I think a dollar fifteen hour. And so after about three or four months of that with the VA, I, I said, you know, law school looked pretty good to me, but I hated it. So what attracted you to journalism? Oh God knows who knows. I was just you know, I ran into somebody who was working as a police reporter at a place called the City News Bureau in Chicago, and um, which every good journalist knows well, about. You know, yes, we could talk about. You know, actually, I was there in the days of Mike Royko. I used to play golf with Mike Royko and and. Uh, um, on Mondays, we could get on all the all the good courses for free, along with the caddies. We were same sort of like caddies, newspaper guys, <laughs> and um, and so I had I had a friend who went to work there, and you, you you all you needed was a the way the the city news bureau, which is a pretty famous place. If anybody's ever seen front page, the play and the, and the movie by Ben Hecht, it's about you know it, uh, Chicago had um, four major newspapers and a lot of radio stations and an awful lot of crime. And so rather than cover every police station and all the courts, 
the newspapers got together and set up a little independent news agency known as City News, and our job was to cover every court and cover the police districts, every police district, and when anything happened, we'd write a piece about it, and there was an internal wire service, and if it was something really important, why, of course, the, the big papers might send somebody there, and if it wasn't that important, they would run something you wrote, you know, in, on their city page. Those were the days the newspapers really tried to be comprehensive in Chicago. What lessons did you learn there? Oh, my God, a lot of them. Um, you know, one of them was about not rushing. Uh, I was covering downtown police, and um, that meant that I, were, I was working the midnight shift at, at police headquarters. That meant, you know, I would sometimes watch the, the pornographic movies with the cops and uh, maybe smoke a Mary Jane with them, you know, that's, they were always confiscating that stuff. It was sort of fun. But every, in one night um, when I was working, there was a, a report on the police radio of two federal officers uh, uh, in a terrible crash right in downtown on a place called Roosevelt Road. And being the energetic kid, I got my old car and ran out there, and I was probably the first or second guy outside of uh, the cops, uh, no other newspaper people, just at the scene. And there was a the car, had there been a firefight, uh, with a, they'd been chasing somebody, and there were bullets fired, and the cop car, it wasn't a cop car, it was, an, it was a, uh, they were uh, treasury agents, and they had gone off, they were unmarked, and they weren't wearing uniforms, and the, uh, uh, the plain clothes cops, I guess, and the car had smashed into a pole, and I went and looked at it, uh, they sure looked dead to me, and I went up to one of the cops, not knowing how mad cops are when other cops get hurt, and I said to the sergeant, are they dead, and he, he you know, he really whacked me, just gave me a hard sort of crack across, across my, not the face, just my shoulders, and knocked me back into the car, another car and said, not until they're pronounced, you you know, a little whatever swear word he used for me, not until they're pronounced by the coroner. So the issue was, do I wait for the coroner to come and pronounce them dead, or do I say they're dead? And I waited, and it turned out to be okay. So sometimes it's so important to wait. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. not a bad lesson. I also learned stuff about racism. Because, uh, you know, it took an awful lot of African-Americans to be killed to, to get much of, much of a story in a newspaper. You know, it, just one being killed in a fire or something nobody cared about. So I learned that, too, because I often work districts that included the mostly black districts in the south side of Chicago. So you, you learn a lot of stuff when you're a police reporter. You see cops work. You see cops lie. You can see cops do bad things. You can see cops do good things. You worked for, I think, first United Press and then Associated Press. Right. And in, in, in the first part of the Vietnam War, you were in Washington, right? Well, what happened was, yeah, that's right. I, I actually, uh, at some point, I had to go in the Army. So I went in, and when I got out, I worked on a community newspaper. And after about six months, I had a buddy of mine from City News, um, somebody I worked with at the City News Bureau. We started a newspaper in the same area because the, the paper I was working on was horrible. And we started making a lot of money, and one day after about, oh, I guess eight or nine months of doing it, I realized if I didn't get out of there, I was going to end up being a fat cat suburban newspaper publisher because we were making, we were selling newspapers and getting national ads. You know, we had about 150 newsboys because we were doing quality stuff, which was important in a, in a regional suburban newspaper. We were actually covering covering the, the city hall and, and writing about what people wanted to see locally and using a lot of photographs high school sports and stuff like that, all the smart stuff that, that's not hard to do. And so I ended up leaving and going to UPI for a, and out in South Dakota, did that, and then AP, I did some good stuff, so AP hired me in Chicago. And then after about a year in Chicago, in which I had a great time, I just my job was to come in at night and find a story, what they call the A-wire for the main wire. I was sort of a good freelance. I could write features. 
and I got sent to Washington where I, they sent me to the Pentagon. So I covered the Pentagon for two, two and a half years, and it was while covering the Pentagon. I went abroad, but basically while being in the building and interfacing with officers, and the war was so big, the Vietnam War was getting very big then, and we had the right as uh, reporters. I, I could eat if I wanted to in the, in the dining hall for young generals, which was always a mistake because you started knowing some of these young guys. And you know how friendly Americans are. Even though I'm a reporter, we talked about the Washington Redskins football. And eventually I got into a poker game with a couple of the guys and, uh, you know, at night. And I learned how horrible the war was, that they were killing. You know, anybody they killed was automatically counted as a Viet Cong. And so I learned it was sort of a mess. How did you get to the famous story about Lieutenant Callie and oh the Eli God. Massacre? I'm sure I'll talk about that maybe when I'm at the university. They're interested in hearing a how-to story. I couldn't do it in, in... I couldn't even begin to do it in the short time we have. It's just, you know, it was just by... I heard about it, and I had enough OJT. I had learned enough from being around the Pentagon that there was a lot of bad stuff going on in that war, so I didn't let it go. I kept on pushing on it. Well, let me let me ask you this, then. What surprised you more? What happened in the My Lai Massacre or how the Army tried to cover it up? That's a great question. I, you know, um, I wrote two books about it. One was about the massacre. And the second book I wrote, this is after I wrote some articles that you know won me all those prizes. As a freelancer, by the way, it was very hard to get a major newspaper to run this stuff. Um, I wrote a second one about the cover-up because it was so clear so many people know so, knew so much about it. The war had become so toxic. I'm afraid we have the same situation now, you know, um, where in Vietnam it didn't matter whether you did it right or wrong. You know, it just didn't matter. Everybody knew it was a loser. It didn't matter whether they reported a crime or didn't report one. You know, you still, nobody, nobody suffered. You still made major if you were a captain, if you were, did, did it by the book or if you looked the other way. And so that was, um, that was upsetting. Um, I, I think the, the enormousness of the, you know, I guess you could use the word enormity, which is really right. Um, it's a word everybody misuses, but the, the horribleness of the numbers were so that they could kill. It was 530 or 50 people, something like that. They exhumed that many bodies later. That, that our guys, you know, guys like me, I'd been in the Army with guys like that. I'd been like that. And, you know, one of the things you learn about being in the Army, I never saw combat, but one of the things you learn is the only thing that matters, it's really not the flag, it's your buddies. You worry about, you know, you're all tied in with your buddies. And if your buddy gets hurt, then you're really upset. And um, and so, but it, this wasn't a case where a bunch of guys went in and got shot up and then killed the bad guys and this, then killed everybody else. They just went in and killed everybody. They weren't under attack at all. There were no casualties. And that was mind-blowing to me because uh, that meant that you had such a collapse of, of small unit leadership, officer leadership, because troops will do. You know, if, you're a good, if you have a good officer, you, you know, you, you keep your nose clean. I was a grunt. I was a private. But, I, I, you know, you, you didn't cross the officers if they were good because you got in trouble. And so clearly the breakdown. And so I think I also sort of sensed and knew that whatever happened to Eli was probably uh, it was a terrible aberration in terms of the number. But clearly bad stuff was going on. Great argument for not going in the wars in a culture and a society that you don't understand and against the people who are indigenous uh, like, if you will, like in Iraq and in Afghanistan. You'd think we'd learn something, but we really don't, do we? People like David Halberstam and Malcolm Brown were beginning to report things actually before this time uh, about difficulties in Vietnam. How did they react to your uh, uh, work on My Lai? 
Well, it's so interesting. Mal Brown, the AP guy, and Neil Sheen was the UP guy, and Halberstam were pretty much gone by the time of Mila. I did that stuff in 69. Right, but I'm just curious. I'm sure you, surely you must have talked to them. Oh, well, Neil Sheen became a good friend, and I still have an enormous respect, and so did David Halberstam. I wrote a book called Kissinger later, and one day David, who I knew, I used to go have dinner with occasionally. He lived in New York. I lived in Washington. He called me up, and he had, gave me the title for my book, The Price of Power. Uh, so he was, uh, you know, I'm so sad he died. He was uh, larger than life and very, very loyal to, to his friends. And I was his friend, and he was my friend. Mal Brown, I really didn't know. I got to know Neil because um, he began covering the Pentagon for the New York Times in 66. He was out of Viet- Vietnam by then, and I was the AP correspondent then. And so we became friends, and I, I still, I don't see him enough. But he's sort of, he's a, a hibernator. He sleeps, uh, works at night and sleeps at day. Um, but there's, uh, there was uh, 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 nobody like him. He had enormous integrity. And so did, so did those three guys. All were amazing. Peter Arnett, too, you have to add. You had Arnett, you had uh, Brown, you had Halberstam. You had really a great core of people. Um, Charlie Moore, who was then of Time Magazine, later with the New York Times. You had a core of really good reporters. Yes, they missed some of the stuff about the mass stuff, but most of them were gone by the time the big American influx came. That came in 65, 66, and all those guys are pretty much uh, done with their years there. They had been there early, and they saw the early disasters, but they weren't there when the Americans came in with you know the numbers of four or 500,000 and things got out of control. I- I'd like to think they would have done the same thing I did. You've gotten a lot of negative response to what you've reported? I mean, not only me lie, but critical study of, of Henry Kissinger, an analysis of President Kennedy's private life, um, reporting Abu Ghraib, critical analysis of how we got into Iraq. How do you deal with that? Uh, I've also gotten a lot of very good things. So you look at it that way. I don't know how I deal with it. People are sometimes, in my own family, everybody's much more sensitive than I am about a lot of things. So I have to watch what I say because I can be, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't really analyze it. I don't think about it. Uh, I'm doing a book now. I'm in the throes, finishing of, and I've done the reporting, but doing the hard part now of a book about Cheney that's not really about Cheney because it's really about how we operate now, which is uh, what's going on now is, you know, it's it's right, now, right in front of our face. We used to hide the fact that the President of the United States would, sit around with the National Security Advisor and his aides and, and pick people to be killed. And now they brag about it. I mean, that's quite a process we've gone through. You know, the question used to be in all the great investigations, you know, uh, what did the president know and when did he know it? Now we know the president knows. <laughs> and nobody seems to care. You know, you can't be a reporter, and, and um, I'm not Pollyanna. I understand that, A, um, people get mad at me, and B, often for legitimate reasons, and everybody thinks they're right. You know, I've been a reporter for about 50 years, and in 50 years I've written about uh, organized crime, done a lot of stuff of that when I was at the New York Times. I got bored with Washington and moved to New York and did organized crime and corporate crime, and I've dealt with, with, with mass murder in Vietnam. I've dealt with uh, um, criminals who were mass murderers, and I've dealt with domestic crime and other stuff. And in 50 years, I have never met anybody who thought he did a thing wrong. I, you, know, you just don't find people who think they do anything wrong. Pretty interesting. How do you choose your topics? Oh, I, they choose me. I don't, I don't, you know, they're just, it's, they're just, it's sort of ineluctable. I mean, Cheney's a great topic. Are obviously, because of some of the stuff I did in the New Yorker, obviously I had friends inside. 
and it's rare. It's it's not hard. I, as somebody who worked at the New York Times for years, it's not hard to uh, know officials and 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 have interviews with them, but you know, and get their line. Even often, it's too much. Too often, I think we don't quote everybody. But you know, the New York Times when I worked there it was uh, the White House would make sure you got briefed on stuff, um, and so it's just that's easy to do. What's really hard is to find somebody in the inside who doesn't go along and is still on the inside, who sees what's going on and really objects and then talks to you about it. That's rare. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I've been lucky to get that. Now, you have you were a freelancer. You've worked for the Wire Services, the New Yorker, the New York Times. Uh, what was it? The Dispatch News Service. Which kind of medium do you like best? I had such a great run at the New York Times. It was amazing. I had a great run at the New Yorker. Uh, after after um, 9-11, um, you, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I like writing books are wonderful. I, I don't think they, they it's the time kills me, but I, I'm, you know, I'm long of tooth, as I said, so it's fun for me to spend, uh, I've been at this for about two, three years now, and spend that much time and really do report everything really as much as I can. That's sort of nice. Uh, you run out of money eventually, so you have to go back to the daily stuff. But, you know, the business has changed so much. I'm not sure... Um, I'm not sure today a kid could do what I did because there's just no money for investigative reporting, no tolerance for it. Um, every budgets are cut back. Um, I was able to, when I was at the Times and at the New Yorker, you know, I just had, if I had to go somewhere in Germany tomorrow, I went. And um, at the New York Times, it was fantastic that way. So was the, uh, so was the New Yorker. And uh, that doesn't exist anymore. I don't think any place. But wouldn't one of your mentors and perhaps heroes was I.F. Stone, Izzy Stone. Yeah. He did it on a shoestring budget, didn't he? Uh, for a long time. But believe me, by the time he got to be, by, by the time the war turned sour, by 67, 68, he was going along in the early years. I first met him in about 65. He actually came to me because of what I was writing for the AP from the Pentagon. Clearly, I had an edge going. So he, he would come and we'd take walks. And he was so amazing because he wasn't. He was described as a radical, but he was very tough on Russia and anti-communist. He was not a he was not interested in communism. He wasn't much of a radical, and because I will tell you, he began to get very popular. And by the middle late sixties, he suddenly had fifty, sixty, seventy thousand circulation, and was making a nice living. Bought a nice new house and lived very well. So he wasn't shoestring, um, but he always was. Um, uh, the great lesson he did is read everything. The same thing I always say. He would read hearings. He would read other newspapers. He would read the magazine articles, and he wouldn't be afraid to, you know, to mix it up. Uh, and by that I mean he wasn't afraid to be interdisciplinary. He would just, uh, uh, he, he, because he, look, he owned his press. One of the things I, that makes discourages me about my business is um, that always it's, this has been in every newspaper business I've been. It's very hard for one major publication to really want to give the other any other competitor space. New York Times never liked to, you know, acknowledge Washington Post stories. And when I was doing stuff uh, on Woodward, after Woodward and Bernstein did the wonderful stuff on Watergate, I was sort of the cleanup guy, the follow guy for the New York Times. And eventually, uh, Carl and Bob and I made an agreement that if they had a great story, more power to them, and I'd make sure the New York Times picked it up and said, even on front page one, uh, occasionally, the the Washington Post reported today, this wasn't done much. And that sort of competitiveness, I think, hurts because... Uh, particularly now with dwindling economy, dwindling new space, and I, I, I can understand the argument of an editor not wanting to give another newspaper space when he doesn't have space for his own stuff. But still, the fact is that we are not very generous to each other. It's a very bitchy business.
But you've got me so long now. We were going to talk for five minutes. I got to get out of here. Okay, let me ask you just one last question. <laughs> oh, I know about that. Which work are you most proud of? Oh, I love all my children. Good answer. Good answer. Seymour Hirsch, thanks very much. Great. Bye bye. Bye bye.